All right, so we just read through Deuteronomy 32 as a group. And the reason why we're doing this is uh, this is a very important passage that shows up in various other places in the scriptures. It often gets alluded to. Specifically, what we're going to think about today is this passage of scripture and one more, which is Isaiah chapter 1. So if you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. And uh, put a bookmark or something back here, because you will be coming back to it momentarily. Isaiah chapter 1. Something that's very common in the study of literature is to look for um, literary dependence or to look for the uh, dependent ideas. All right, you're reading one thing, you see ideas, you can see they come from other things. One of the reasons why we do when you do this with literature is because well, it it helps you understand it better. All right, and the same thing is true of the scriptures. If you've got a piece of scripture, either quoting or alluding to another piece of scripture, you can go, oh, I can use the one it's alluding to, to help me interpret this one. And I can use this one to help me interpret the one it's alluding to. We're going to find today that Deuteronomy 1 lies um, very heavily dependent on Deuteronomy 32. And I'll start us off, uh, if we started Isaiah chapter 1, I'll show you the first one, all right, which is a good clue uh, that this is going to, uh, to, to be perhaps... Uh, riffing on Isaiah, on uh, Deuteronomy 32. So in Isaiah 1, once you start the content, because the first part's just, when was Isaiah prophesying? Here's the kings. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. If we look and we start off at Deuteronomy 32, verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Now, as we discussed a few weeks ago, um, God's essentially calling witnesses. All right, who is he calling as witnesses? He's calling gods, angels, demons, basically anyone in the spiritual realm to listen, saying, "Here, O heavens, this is something I'm saying is solemnly true, something that is going to happen." All right? And also, "Here, O earth, everyone who's listening that is mortal." I take that as the basic bifurcation there, all right? Listen up. I'm going to say something, you're my witnesses to this, this solemn oath, this thing that I'm saying is true. And then you get in Deuteronomy 32, as we discussed, all right, a discussion of God's relationship with Israel at that time. Right? They had just come out of the Exodus. There's a discussion there of um, various things, as you read, right? their sin, how God responded, and so forth. That is just the first of many thematic overlaps between Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah 1. What I want you to do is I want you to at least pair up. If you want, you can just use your whole table, whatever is convenient for you. (coughs) What I want you to do is I want you to spend about uh, 10 minutes, maybe not quite that long. I want you to compare. I want you to find things that are parallel between Isaiah 1, uh, which is significantly shorter than the Deuteronomy passage, right? And, and just Isaiah 1 through 20, or Isaiah 1, 2 through 20, all right? I want you to spend some time just going, okay, Isaiah talked about this. Where do we see this in 
Deuteronomy 32, because almost everything in Isaiah 1 is in Deuteronomy 32 in some form or fashion. Okay? And so, work together. Groups of two, three, four, I'm not particularly picky, but work together, discuss, find what overlaps, and then we will discuss together, okay? Any questions? Might be helpful to have a piece of paper. Up to you. Okay. Get going. Your country is 
And do note, we're not looking for exact quotations here, though often the exact words will parallel and names. Right? We're looking for ideas. Right? As well as the others. Thank you. 
two more minutes and then we'll start discussing as a, as a group. Let's talk. So, 
You might have noticed there's some overlap between the two passages. Let's talk about them. Uh, let's let's start with Team Youngins. All right, Team Youngins. Yes. Right. They're both in response to rebellion. Right. Now, in in Deuteronomy 32, all right, he's talking about past rebellion. All right, and he's talking to the people as they're about to go into the land. He's talking about past rebellion. Isaiah 1, it's not past rebellion. Right. It's this is you right now. Right. So yes, definitely. They're both very much about rebellion and how God reacts to rebellion. All right. What else we got? Anybody else? Uh, Isaiah 1 verse 4 mm-hmm. was a parallel to Deuteronomy verse 5, 5. Okay, so I, Isaiah 1 4. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who do corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And. Um, 32.5, yeah, I, I got the same one. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Let's think about the relational aspects of this. There's a lot of relation stuff here. One, right here, clearly the whole idea of God as Father, right? In Isaiah 1.4, right? Um, you, they've forsaken the Lord, or I guess really go up to the, the second line. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. All right, so you've got them talking to them about as children, right? Awe, sinful nation, people laden with, with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Instead of being children of God, they are children of the wicked. But in Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomy 32.5, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children. All right, so let's use that as a discussion point. What does he mean? What is the nature of the family relationship between God and Israel? They obey him and have to be their God and take care of them and keep their enemies and everything will be great. If they don't, then he'll reject them. Remember, this is analogous to family relationships, maybe not exactly like family relationships. All right. If one of my children, all right, uh, if one of my children does something I don't like, all right, and even repeatedly ends up doing something I don't like and rebelling them, I'm not necessarily going to go. You know what? You're not my child anymore. Right. In both of these cases. All right, you've got an analogous but different relationship between God and Israel. Those who rebel, all right, you've actually got God saying, cut off and removed. All right, we see this in a number of places. Uh, before I do that, does anybody know of any of these places? And we can point them out. Yes, Jeff. Oh, no, sorry, I just, I just had another question. 
Yeah. I was just wondering if um, you could say God's relationship with Israel is more like a contract almost. Like it's, it is. It's not exactly like that, but it's, you know, the old covenant is kind of like the, like, I'll be your God, you'll be my people if you do and obey these things. Yeah. It uses, the old covenant language uses ancient contract or ancient covenant language to talk about God's relationship to Israel. All right? He is their father and that he gave them birth. But that doesn't necessarily mean it 100% overlaps exactly how we work, at least, or even they necessarily worked as husband and father. It is a metaphor, not exactly the same. But yes, it definitely uses that contract type negotiation language. If we, uh, Anybody want to point out any other verse related to this father-children, getting rid of children language from either of these uh, passages before I point them out? Turn to Deuteronomy 32, um, verse 30. How could one have chased a thousand, and two have put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them, and the Lord had given them up? All right, very similar idea here. And just to get the idea, all right, how could one chase the thousand? The idea is, all right, Israel attacking with a thousand. The enemy attacking with one. The one wins. All right, that doesn't make any sense. It's completely illogical. How could that possibly happen? Answer, God had sold them. God had said, you? No. All right? God had sold them. God had given them up. So you've got that definite disowning, selling idea in 3230. All right? And in 32.5, um, as we already mentioned, right? They have dealt corruptly. They're no longer his children because they are blemished and they're a crooked and twisted generation. And so the generation, right? The, 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 the folks that were rejected between the leaving of Egypt and the entrance into Israel... They were no longer his children. God removed them. Gone. Right? That's at least the idea there. Okay. Uh, God as Father. Any other relationship talk there? Anybody would want to point out? If you would, let's go back to Deuteronomy, starting in 6. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Now, now it's going to do a flashback to previous history. The whole point of the flashback of previous history is to discuss God's fatherhood. Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. I think that, as we've discussed, is a reference to Babel. Verse 9. Why is that historical flashback? 9. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted Heritage. That's how the fatherhood worked. All right. God gathered Abraham and his descendants and said, This is mine. All right. The other nations, they had their other gods. This right here is mine, my allotted heritage. Now, I also think we see this 
in the lingo, all right, of the Holy One of Israel. If you look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. What does holy mean? Yeah? Set apart. This often has the meaning of clean and pure, all right? I think in Isaiah, that's not the meaning here, all right? It's not saying they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the pure one of Israel. All right? Holy one of Israel, often in Isaiah, means the one that is the God set apart for Israel. All right? It's got that holy idea of set apart. So, in other words, they are set apart for him, and God is set apart for them. All right? As opposed to those Canaanites, they have their other God. All right, you are set apart for me. I am set apart for you. Let's see this theme elsewhere in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah ten, verse twenty. Ten. Ten, verse twenty. All right, in ten, verse twenty. This is in the context of a uh, judgment on Assyria. All right? And why here Assyria? Well, part of the reason why Assyria plays a big part in Isaiah is because Assyria is not there primarily to judge Judah. Assyria is there primarily to judge Israel and to destroy it. All right? There's the whole episode between Isaiah and the king saying, you don't have to worry about the fact that Damascus and Samaria are coming after you. Assyria will crush them. Because God is sending this area. However, in that context, all right, is this. In that day, and this is Isaiah 10, verse 20, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer lean on him who struck them. That's Assyria. All right? They won't lean on Assyria. Who are they going to lean on? All right? They're going to lean on the Lord, the God set apart for Israel in truth. All right, now turn to Isaiah 17. Isaiah 17. We start in 6. Gleanings will be left in it as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bow, four or five on the branches of the fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. Or... Yahweh, his name, the God of Israel. Next verse. In that day man will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. What's the parallelism? Alright. The point of the parallelism is not purity, purity. The point of the parallelism in that one verse. In that day we'll look on his maker. Who's the maker of Israel? God. Alright. God set them apart. And his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel, the God who set himself apart for them. All right? Let's keep going. Isaiah 29. In none of these is it really focusing on God's purity. It's focusing on the relational aspect. Isaiah 29, 23. Let's start back in 22. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, 
the work of his hands in his midst. They will sanctify his name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. None of this is a discussion of the purity of God. It is entirely, once again, a relational discussion. All right, let's go. uh, Well, let's actually just keep reading. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding, and those who murmur will accept instruction. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter of the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his convoys, or excuse me, envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame, though a people that cannot profit them, that bring neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Alright, you've got that you've got that continuing theme, alright, of don't go to Egypt. Egypt's not your protection, Egypt's not your God. Alright? I'm your God. All of that which is to say, if we go back to Isaiah chapter one, if we look at verse four, they've despised the Holy One of Israel is not is not a statement about God's purity, even though God is pure. It is a statement about the Holy One of Israel is a, a relational statement between Israel and God. Alright? Okay, let's let's switch topics now. Let's get out of the pure relational stuff. What else happened that is parallel between these two passages? Do I have to move quickly now? Yes. Okay. Sodom and Gomorrah, Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-two, and Isaiah one nine through ten. All right. There's that one. What else we got? Yep. And Deuteronomy also has a a second swearing, uh, also in in verse 40 as well. Isaiah does not, I, I couldn't find a second swearing, but yeah, that is parallel. You've got parallels between destructions, right? Yes. Uh-huh. You've essentially in both cases, especially in Isaiah, the idea is, you know, the foreigners are coming and destroying. All right. Now the idea is not there. Don't let foreigners into your land. Right. The, it's so it's not anti-foreigner. It's a reference specifically to foreign armies. All right. Foreign armies are coming into your land and stealing and destroying all your stuff. That's bad. All right. This is not as please be a xenophobe kind of message. It is not that at all. It is their armies are here and that's bad. What, were you going to say something? Yeah. Yeah, the precursor of that is on both of them. He says, I'm going to hide my face. Yes. You're going to be in trouble. And yes. I'm going to be there to help. Yes. So, hide your face. All right. God hiding his face. What's the verses on that? Deuteronomy is 20. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Deuteronomy 32, verse 20. And I said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation. Children in whom is no faithfulness. All right? And um, Isaiah, what was it? 115. 115. 
when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Yes, what else we got? I think that idea is, is related to the, or what, what we talk about is the general gospel that our sins have separated us from God. Mm-hmm. That's what he's saying. You're going to pray and you're going to cry out and I'm not going to listen. Right. There, there would be a prayer that he would listen to, right? And it would be the prayer of repentance. Anything else? No. Not going to listen, yeah. I don't know if this counts, but, you know, I've noticed uh, there's idolatry in Deuteronomy 32, you know, talking about the foreign gods. And yes. Isaiah 1, like, I, I couldn't find anything about idolatry, but I could hear how God was uh, tired of their false worship. You know, they, they have been correct, but uh, inwardly their hearts were not worshiping God. So I, I don't know if that's similar or not. Uh, there is definitely, right? idolatry overlap between the two, right? And you're going to even get that even more uh, whenever you go to the the next part of the chapter, I believe. But yes. And when you've got, generally speaking, there's a lot of idolatry in Isaiah. Yes, you're absolutely right. You kind of get an idolatry vibe from 13 to 14. Bring no more vain offerings, incense as abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. You know, it's interesting, uh, like, I'm weary of bearing them. All right, Is God physically weary of it? No, that's not the point. He's like, I am tired of your hypocritical sacrifices. No more. All right? Do not want them at all. It's not physically tired in any way. All right? What else? Did you see also the parallel between sacrifices in the two? Because in Deuteronomy 32 38, you've got, we're talking about them who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. And this is talking about uh, explicitly idolatry there. Where are the gods in the rock in which you took refuge? In Isaiah, that is not as explicitly tied to idolatry. It's just, you're not being faithful. You are being evil, and you're bringing sacrifices. Uh-uh. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to... In verse 12, I find this one interesting. When you come here, appear before me, who, is, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? What's doing the trampling? It's not just people, right? It's animals. It's, it's, you're, because it's not just the idea of people coming to church and worshiping. It's people dragging along all those animals, all right, into the temple for slaughter. And God is like, I don't want you to trample my courts with all this stuff, all right? Because you're laden with sin and iniquity. What about remnant language? It's in both. Anybody see that? You, you've got in Isaiah uh, 1.9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And you see this in a, a couple places in, in Deuteronomy. Like um, Deuteronomy 20, 26.27. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Meaning, killed all of them. 
All right. Had I not feared the provocation of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. In other words, the remnant language in Deuteronomy 32 is about, I'm not going to wipe everybody out, because then all the foreigners and all their foreign gods would say, well, God couldn't even protect his people. What's actually more miraculous is the fact that God protected a remnant and then grew them again. All right? So that language is there. Um, let's see. There's definitely a lot of reap what you sow in both. All right? Now, did anyone find in Isaiah, and this is probably um, one of the two most quoted verses from this chapter, Isaiah 1.18. Come now, lead us, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What was the parallel in Deuteronomy? It was towards the end of the Isaiah passage. You might not have had time to get to it. All right, let's look at it. 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens, and bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. I don't think that one is it. If you look at verse 29, all right, this is one of those, it's not an exact verbal parallel, but the idea is there. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. And then it explains, how could one have chased a thousand? All right? And so he's appealing. He's like, are they wise? Were they thinking straight? No, they weren't. When you go, go back to Isaiah 1.18, Come, now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Um, I, I, wouldn't want, I wouldn't memorize this translation, but I kind of like it. The Net Bible, uh, Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let's consider your options. All right? <laughs> Which is exactly what's going on. Uh, let's consider your options, guys. All right? Let's reason together. All right. And if you go to verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the food of the land. Option one, option two. But if you re- refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right. So you've got consider your options. Be reasonable. Option one, option two. You want option one, not option two. I'm trying to think. There's lots of other within the sub-themes verses that, we com- that you can combine between the two, uh, but we won't go through them because we are lacking time at this point. And so, I really think Isaiah 1, it, you've either got a case of he's just, the prophet is just so infused with the language of Deuteronomy 32, he can't help but um, use this language to talk about the relationship. It's possible that. I actually think it's probably more than that. It's probably intentional. Let's, let's rethink through the Song of Moses. And now let's apply it to you and how you are being just like the wicked were in the Song of Moses. Because it's just overlapping everywhere. And I think it makes for an interesting uh, little Bible study. From a, what should we learn from this? Not only is that we should, of course, do this kind of activity when we're doing Bible study. But also, remember, what's the point of these passages? All right? God has a relationship with these people. All right? And 
he expects his people, just like he will always right, do his side of the bargain, he expects from his people to do theirs. All right? We are not under the same bargain, the same arrangement as Israel. All right? We don't have that same covenant. That being said, all right, a lot of this stuff applies to us in terms of, do you want God to hear your prayers? All right, then don't live a life full of wickedness, actually. Because if you do that, the prayer you should be praying at that point is certainly repentance. You should seek obedience so that God can bless you. Maybe He will bless you physically. Maybe. He will certainly bless you spiritually if you do so. All right? And for those who would rebel against God, all right, not a good sight. All right? Isaiah 1, all right, he's going back, he's talking and saying, look at the current state you're in. Why is this the case? Because you rebelled against God. You are very messed up because of what you've done. All right? Deuteronomy 32 is pointing to the pointing to the uh, to the previous and saying, "Watch it. You saw what happened before. Keep that in mind. This will be your end, as it would be later in Isaiah, if you forget these lessons. We should remember these lessons as well." And, and they yeah. kind of stayed in that state all the way until Jesus' time. You know, yeah. saying, yes, you're doing the, the physical sacrifices that you're supposed to be doing, but your hearts are not in it. Why are there so many animals in the temple? Get this stuff out of here. Yeah. Indeed. You know, when Jesus is in the temple, he doesn't quote this one, he quotes another one, right? Right? You're turning my house of prayer into a den of thieves. S- same critique, different language, right? So let's remember that. Any final thoughts before we dismiss? Michael, will you please pray for us? Thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for all that you bless us with. Thank you for gathering us here safely. Pray for those who can't make it today. Pray, Lord, that you bless them and bring them back to us quickly and safely. Thank you for this morning and for the time we got to study our Bibles. We thank you, Lord, for the song of Moses, for Isaiah. We thank you that we have this written down, that we can read it and reflect our own lives. Lord, please help us. I pray that you'd make us into more faithful people. Help us to be stirred up into good works and to encourage one another. And be with us now as we go into our hour of worship, um, that you prepare us for that. I pray all things in Jesus' name. Amen.